Are you impressed when you see a movie is based on a true story? But what about if it's only inspired by a true story? Are you okay with that? Does it bother you? Should we care? Well, I care about baseball, but you know what I've never really cared about and now think is sillier than ever? Counting wins by pitchers. Well, last but certainly not least, let me ask you if it sounds like I might be complaining this week. Well, yes, I am. And that's because once or twice a year on Rule Breaker Investing, I do complain. It's a pet peeves episode. We haven't done one of these since last September. So yeah, it's time. Pet Peeves, Volume 7, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It's one of my favorite, admittedly most self-indulgent podcasts I get to do every year. And the good news is, yeah, I only do this about once a year. In fact, the last time I did a Pet Peeves podcast was last September. Do I come back each year bitter from Labor Day? So it's been 12 months, and so I've had substantial time to let things happen. You know, lots of things. And if there's a particular thing that happens, and it bothers me for whatever often silly reason, and I note it at the time, but then it happens again. And maybe again and again, well, I just grab my iPhone at that point and I drop a quick note into my organizational system and I start to build a list. And then suddenly here we are. It's September 2022 and I've stored up a list, in this case of six pet peeves that I've personally seen and experienced over the previous 12 months. And so I'm ready because it's been repressed. I've bottled it up. I've saved it. I've Just had to sit there and deal, silently knowing one day I will be able to talk about it, and that day has come. So there's probably some extra energy that I bring to this podcast each time I do it once a year because I'm still really feeling it like it just happened. Each time I do one of these episodes, and this is the seventh, I point out a couple things. First, every single one of the previous six is non-duplicative. I don't go back to the well or keep beating a dead horse over and over again. Turns out I can live my way through life and find enough to complain about new each time, at least once a year. But another thing I like to do with these podcasts as I open them up is just mention some of the others from the past, maybe to entice you to go back and listen, for example, to last year when I expressed my disdain for the line, bulls make money, Bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. Yep, that was featured in volume six or the year before, volume five. Penalty kicks to decide soccer slash football matches, especially ones that really matter. Penalty kicks? Or the year before that, 2019, when I invade against the phrase growth stocks. Or 2018, volume three before that, Vanity plate hate. Why do people hate vanity plates? Or the year before that, volume two, people who lead off saying something to you with this line, I'll be honest with you. For some of my longtime listeners, I think you already know where I'm headed with that one. But if if that doesn't describe you, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Pet Peeves volume two 
or the very first Pet Peeves podcast of all on Rule Breaker Investing, which was in 2016, where I closed it with Pet Peeve number nine, people who keep really long lists of pet peeves, designed, of course, to be self-effacing because I think I'm one of those people. And clearly, now that we've reached volume seven of this episodic series, I certainly qualify as a person, apparently, who keeps really long lists of pet peeves. But the good news is I give it in bite-sized chunks once a year. So even though I have six more to add right now to the list, I'm going to spare you all the others. We're just going to do these six for 2022. Let's get started. Pet peeve number one, last but not least. You know the situation. You're going around a table. You're introducing people. We arrive at the last person, and it's often the host or the generous MC who says, last but not least, David Gardner. Last but not least, blank. And in my mind, is this just me or do you feel the same way? It always immediately invites group consideration as to who probably is the least. I mean, you're basically saying the final speaker is someone who is not the person of least standing here, not the person of lowest character. This is not the real scoundrel in the room. You're inviting all of us to ask ourselves immediately, hmm, Last but certainly not least, huh, you know, wow, wasn't thinking about that until now, but now that you mentioned it, let me look around the room a little bit more and definitely determine in my own mind, even though I wasn't in any way thinking about this until you said that, let me spend some extra time now putting someone down. Just for a moment, looking around the room, who is the person who counts least? Who is the real scoundrel? Who's the weakest link? As I skip my way merrily through life, I'll note these kinds of lines or things as they happen, and I often date stamp them. So I wrote this one down on November 30th of last year, saving it up to share it with you this week. I was seeing what I was doing that day. I was at a YPO event partnering with Conscious Capitalism. It was a Zoom event, and I'm pretty sure the MC of that Zoom event probably had each person introduce themselves, and the person said, now last but not least, or maybe even last, but certainly not least. And when that happened, I noted it down, saved it up to share it with you. I try not to use that phrase. All right, pet peeve number two. Let's call this one ever-widening gaps. Got some headlines for you here. Gender pay gap widens. That's actually from Korea. Here's another one. Primary school disadvantage gap widens to largest in 10 years. That's from the United Kingdom. Another, Mexico's trade gap widens more than expected on fuel import costs. Math rates fell. Achievement gap widened in D.C. schools. One more example. Premier League club revenues increase as gap widens with the rest of Europe's top divisions. Now, before I continue this mini rant further, let me make it really clear. I'm certainly not here saying gaps don't matter or that they they shouldn't be addressed, not at all. But what I am saying is that I think too many people are viewing the world through the lens of gaps. Often zero-sum trade-off thinking 
And I think anybody who's listened to this podcast for any meaningful period of time will realize I have sort of the opposite mentality. I have more of an abundance mindset, and we're trying to create wins for everybody. Win, win, win. But there are a lot of gap hunters in our world at large, and I think a lot of them are journalists who write headlines. Because one of the things I almost never see in any headline, I was reflecting on this quite a bit over the last year, is that any gap is narrowing. You'll rarely hear that a gap is narrowing. So we go through our lives, we're hearing through media reports that likely spill over into the regular day-to-day of our social lives. The gaps are widening, people. Gaps widening. Remember, widening, not really narrowing. Well, rarely so. And if so, if such a thing happens that a gap would actually be narrowing, it probably won't be newsworthy. You know, I think one of the things that happens in life is that over the course of time, excellence shows up and a lot of us turn our attention more toward excellence and away from things that are not as excellent. A quick example, maybe instructive, is that last headline I shared with you, Premier League club revenues increase as gap widens with the rest of Europe's top divisions. I don't think that means the Premier League is doing anything wrong. It is, after all, the most watched sports league in the world doing a little research. It broadcasts to 212 territories. It can reach 643 million homes, a potential TV audience of 4.7 billion. So it just enjoys a lot more interest and attention than even great leagues like the Bundesliga, for example, which is one of those other European top divisions that is suffering from a widening gap with our interest in the Premier League. I think as humans, we're particularly concerned, especially if we're fair-minded, we're particularly concerned by the presence of gaps, which probably explains why there's such an obsession with hunting gaps widening. And it probably does deserve news headlines more so than gaps narrowing. But I thought I would let my fingers do the Googling and see just how often we're using these two phrases. And check it. You can do this yourself. I just typed in gaps widen on Google and selected news. And I discovered that there were 1,240,000 search results with gap widens in the headlines. I typed in gap narrows. There were 78,300 examples of gaps narrowing. So what I am saying is that, again, I think too many people are viewing the world through the lens of gaps, but directly related at a ratio of 15.9 to 1, you're going to hear that gaps are widening, not narrowing. This is not a real headline, but I wouldn't be surprised if gap greatly widens between article headlines with gap widens versus article headlines with the phrase gaps narrow. Or maybe gap continues to widen between journalists obsessively searching for gaps versus those who don't. So thus much, I guess, for gaps. I just want to say that it seems to me in life and in our environment and in human dynamics Gaps would probably narrow about as much as they would widen, but even if they only narrowed one-third as much of the time, we live in a world where the headlines about gaps widening are outnumbering the headlines of gaps narrowing by 16 to 1. It's like, it's like losing every game in the Premier League that you play 16 to 1 
if you're cheering on gaps in narrowing or the reporting of them, or if you're even someone who would look for or notice, let alone celebrate gaps narrowing. Nope. There's a gap. Gaps, really. Oh, and they're widening. Tune in. Details at 11. All right. On to Rule Breaker Investing, pet peeve number three this week. I spend a lot of time, I think probably too much time, looking at language or thinking about language. Diction is one of my favorite things in life. Diction, as I recall from my schoolboy days, basically means word choice. It's what you chose to say. It's the tools that you used that you leaned on as you opened your mouth or took pen to paper. It's the words we choose to use. And a number of my pet peeves in the past have often been about stock market reporting and how I think the language that we're using misleads people or undermines your ability to succeed at investing or business or life. Pet peeve number three is another one of those pedantic observations, but this one isn't world-moving or earth-shattering. Really, is any of my pedantry either of those? But nevertheless, I did want to go here. So let's go, pet peeve number three, to the word, if you want to call it a word, overly. If you Google the phrase, overly is not a word, as I did, you'll get a result about five results down on Google It'll list an NPR article that's entitled, Regardless of What You Think, Irregardless is a Word, which is, which is fine. I mean, it's not a word I'm going to use. My aim, to spread beauty and elegance in the world, and irregardless, and I'm going to put that word in quotes, is akin to me to waste or wastefulness. Now, a lot of people litter and just generating waste on its own isn't illegal, but it's inelegant. It doesn't make a contribution, and especially for some of us possibly over-indexing toward cranky, aging people like me, we notice what you say. We notice and care about how we write. So there's almost a wink-wink in a good way. When you write the word overcautious, you're going to get credit from me, dear speaker or writer, bonus points, because you didn't write overly cautious. When you write over-focused instead of overly focused, and similarly, though you won't notice it because irregardless is, according to NPR, a word, you won't notice that you lost bonus points as you said it or wrote it, but you will with me. And often I think you're gaining or losing these bonus points invisibly with some of the better educated and discerning people out there. Now, let me make it clear. I'm pretty sure in a past Motley Fool article or book or talk, I might have said the word overly. I probably didn't, but we're all human. And this comes from a place of love and forgiveness. I'm not trying to denigrate too hard here. But a recent book I really enjoyed that I guess I could have featured last month on Authors in August, just didn't have room for it, is a book called Essentialism by Greg McCune. I highly recommend this book. McCune is all about saving time, saving energy by focusing on the things that really matter. But ironically, McCune frequently leans on the word overly throughout his book, which goes a little bit against the message, the elegance of essentialism. So just a few examples. He writes on page 178, don't be overly focused 
on the details. That should be over-focused. Page 157, it's easy to get overly committed to a certain idea. That should just be over-committed. Page 174, our life can resemble an overly full closet. How about just an over-full closet? It's an elegant phrasing. And on page 183, if 50%, he writes, seems overly generous, that should just be over-generous. So I will contend that every single time you ever come across the word overly, you could save a little time, save a little space by just combining it with the adjective that pseudo-adverb is modifying. And as you write over a full or over-committed or over-focused, your reader will experience a little bit of pleasure and you will have saved a couple of letters or a second of someone's time in this world. You know, in closing, there's another much more positive approach here. There's a glass half full approach that can be taken to these things. Rather than denigrate human foibles, as I think I am right now, we could certainly just uphold noble action and noble aspiration and, and leave it at that, right? Which is what I try to do the other 51 weeks of the year. But this is our Pet Peeves podcast where we have demarcated our rant zones. So stay away or sign off right now, dear listener. If this is not what you need this week, it wouldn't be oversensitive of you, and I won't be overconcerned. Pet peeve number four. I mentioned this at the top of the show. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because not many people care nearly as much as I do about baseball. But one of the things that has always seemed silly, and it goes back from the earliest days of baseball, is that the pitcher, often the starting pitcher of the team, but ultimately a pitcher will, at the end of the nine-inning game, be granted a win or a loss. Last I checked, there are nine players on the field, and most of them, except the pitcher these days, spend half their time hitting what actually scores runs. And then the other half of the time, eight of those players are fielding positions trying to deny the opponent runs. And the pitcher, who is the most important player on the team, I think, because they're the ones actually throwing the ball, and that does matter a great deal. So I want to make it really clear, I think pitchers are important. But the notion that we're ascribing a the win or the loss, game in and game out, decade in and decade out to a pitcher has never felt right to me. There are certainly some games where a hitter on the team who might have made a great catch in center field as well clearly deserves the win, would deserve credit if we're going to take a team sport and say, this person gets the win. Some of the time we should be giving the win, I think, to a position player who hit a couple of home runs and made a great catch. So on the face of it, this is the pet peeve of why are we giving wins and losses to players at all in a team sport? We don't do that in basketball. Nobody says, who got the win? The power forward. We don't do it in football, although a lot of the media does cover football as if it's all about the quarterbacks, which I think is a mistaken view of the sport. But only in baseball, and I guess, yes, hockey with goalies, do we ascribe wins and losses to an individual player. But the reason I'm focusing on baseball here And talking about this this week is because there's been a big change in Major League Baseball in terms of how pitchers pitch. And I don't mean that many of them now throw in the high 90s or over 100 miles an hour, which was not even true 20 years ago of just about any pitcher. 
that has been a change in pitching, but I'm talking about how pitchers are handled today by their managers. Increasingly, starting pitchers, the person who starts pitching for his team at the start of the first inning, are on a pitch count. And and typically, it's about 100 pitches. This was not true of baseball when I was a kid growing up or the decades before that. Pitchers would often throw a complete game of nine innings. But these days, if you're on a hard pitch count of 100, that typically will last into the fifth or sixth, sometimes the seventh inning, rarely, if ever, after that. And the way that we're now managing pitchers and the way that we maintain their wellness, I guess, and their longevity as players is we only let them pitch four, five, or six innings, even starting pitchers. And in recent years, starting with the Tampa Bay Rays and many others who are playing money ball these days, a topic I've talked about on other Rule Breaker Investing podcasts, sometimes they don't even start the so-called starting pitcher. They'll start a reliever who will just pitch the first inning. So there's been a lot of experimentation in terms of who throws, how long they throw, and when, and yet the thing that has continued is the silly counting of wins and losses, which makes even less sense in an era where the starting pitchers don't pitch that long. To give an example and just bring this back to specifics, I'm a Minnesota Twins fan. The Twins had a game earlier this year in which their starting pitcher, Bailey Ober, threw four innings. Just four innings. He gave up only one hit. He struck out six batters with no walks. It was an excellent four innings for Bailey Ober. He got relieved by a relief pitcher in the fifth inning named Caleb Tealbar. Caleb proceeded immediately to give up two hits and a run. But because during those couple of innings, the Twins themselves scored more runs than the opponents, again, knowledgeable baseball fans know exactly what I'm talking about. And for everybody else, this point is almost over. Tealbar was credited with the win. Again, if you look at what happened that game, the best pitcher who threw for the longest time, four innings, he gave up one hit and no runs, was Bailey Ober. But because baseball has a rule that you can't get a win as the starting pitcher if you don't pitch five complete innings, instead, the relief pitcher who comes in right away gives up runs in only a couple of innings. Nothing like the contribution made by Ober Tealbar got the win. It was his first win of the season. Now, that's just one game, but what I'm talking about here are meaningless statistics that continue to be counted and kept and probably drive some decision-making or at least some opinions on talk radio these days. Statistics that don't really make much sense anymore. And so I'm hoping this little pet peeve strikes a blow for freedom for better ways of viewing who's adding value in the game of baseball. Pitchers getting wins, especially in 2022, silly. All right, two left. Let's move on. Pet peeve number five, astrology. When I was a kid, I thought this sounded pretty cool. There was a horoscope in my newspaper. And even as an adult, we'll have fun, don't we, saying things like, I'm a bullheaded Taurus. But yeah, pet peeve, easy. Number five, astrology. I'm quite sure I'm stepping on a few toes here, possibly upsetting someone, but this is a pet peeves episode, so what would you expect? My constant friend Wikipedia puts it well, quote, throughout most of its history, astrology was considered a scholarly tradition. During the Enlightenment, however, astrology disappeared 
as an area of legitimate scientific pursuit. Following the end of the 19th century and the wide-scale adoption of the scientific method, researchers have successfully challenged astrology on both theoretical and experimental grounds and have shown it to have no scientific validity or explanatory power. And yeah, for me, it all keys to, think about this, Greek mythological associations imposed on the pattern of hot rocks millions of light years away. Think about it. It makes no sense. But don't take my word for it. Ask someone who follows it to explain to you exactly how it works. I realize for some, astrology almost rises to the level of religion, and I certainly don't spend any time and won't really criticizing religion on this podcast, but it's not. It's a pseudoscience. All right, let's close it out. Pet peeve number six. I kind of let off the top of the podcast this week, pointing to the association of movies with true stories. I have to admit, having watched however many movies I have in theaters and out now at the age of 56, I'm not sure I ever remember one saying right at the start, a true story. I think if you really want to create a powerful moment as a director with your audience, you would just flash on, just before it starts, a true story. But absent that, which admittedly is almost over the top these days, we're left with movies that are based on a true story. And I would say, growing up, that was a phrase I would see more often than not. And it always felt inspiring, you know. I don't think Rocky was ever based on a true story, but I think Chariots of Fire, right? It won Best Picture. I think it was probably based on a true story. Since then, I've noticed an increasing preponderance of the phrase inspired by a true story, which increasingly has me scratching my head. I joked to family members when we saw the movie I Am Legend, the Will Smith vehicle from some years back. What if it said, inspired by a true story, which I guess most science fiction probably isn't really. But I started to Google what we're making. What is a true story? What is based on a true story? And what is inspired by a true story? And I found myself on the website filmindependent.org, where there's a good interview with Rona Edwards. And she gives these words. She says, inspired by means that it's based on a real life event, but that a lot of the characters and scenes surrounding it are fictionalized. She's giving advice here to movie makers. She says, you may want to use inspired by if you've changed the story so much that it's basically just an essence of the original story. She goes on, based on a true story is more of an accurate accounting of the story, though there's probably some dramatic license taken. Well, I feel like I've made use of my own dramatic license going through my six pet peeves with you this podcast. And rather than just complain the entire podcast, I thought I'd try to add a little value to you at the end. And so let me share with you what I found, which I love. If you Google the phrase, based on a true, true story, you will find the top link from the site informationisbeautiful.net. 
based on a true, true story. This is especially for movie aficionados or anybody who's looking for more truth in this world. And if you're near a web browser or on your phone, click in with me, won't you? And you're going to see a really cool display. You're going to see a number of popular recent movies as a thin strip across the screen from left to right. And that's the chronology of the movie. And there are blue vertical strips or sometimes wide bands of blue and then red ones or pink ones as well. And the more blue it is at any given moment, that's the more true that story is. And the more pink or red that strip, these things look like ribbon candy, the more pink or red, the falser it is. But what's even cooler than just the already very helpful infographic where you can look across Bohemian Rhapsody and see it's true 80% of the time, which is really quite good, especially when you compare it to the imitation game, which is right only 42.3% of the time. By the way, Selma, 100% true. Now, I hasten to mention, I didn't initially notice this myself. My producer, Rick, has pointed out to me that at the top of the informationisbeautiful.net based on a true, true story page, there's actually a drop-down selectable box entitled Pedantry, which I think is beautifully relevant to this week's podcast, but the pedantry levels for this page are the default setting, flexible, come on, it's movies. The second choice is can bear some dramatic license, and the third is only the absolute truth. So I should mention that if you select the only the absolute truth pedantry setting, you will discover that Selma, still the most accurate of all these movies, is only 81.4%. But what's really cool about this site is you can click into any of those movies and those color strips left or right, and it will show you the exact timestamp in the movie with a quick image and an explanation of how it's true or false. But even if you don't want to dial in that closely, just at an infographic level, you have a stunning opportunity these days. I don't know if informationisbeautiful.net is doing this for all the movies or just more popular recent Hollywood films, but you can really see what is true in that true story. So that's probably my favorite internet link of the week. And it's my pleasure to close down the ranting and raving this week by actually making a positive contribution to the world by pointing you to this wonderful tool. Well, in a world where it seems the gaps are always widening and there's increasing skepticism about what's true and what's not, And we often wonder, what has been based on a true story or merely inspired by a true story? I think we see a little bit of the future looking at informationisbeautiful.net in terms of helping us figure out what's true and what's false, inspired by a true story. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.